couple of announcements, not my forte. And I forgot to announce this last week, but we are going to have our toy drive for the Salvation Army. They changed the name to it of it this year. It's called Angel Tree and not Treasures for Children, but it's appropriate gifts for children ages six months to 13 years of age and a suggested gift item value between 15 and $25 and unwrapped gifts. You can bring them in here to the church and no later than Sunday, December 4th. So that gives you about a month and the gifts will be delivered to the Salvation Army in New Kensington and distributed to a local child in need. And so that's been a wonderful partnership we've had with Salvation Army for several years now. We're going to continue that. Also, Christmas is on a Sunday this year, and so is New Year's Day. So I solved that problem because we're going to meet Sunday, Saturday morning instead of Sunday morning on those two holidays. Or Saturday the 24th at 10, Saturday the... 31st at 10. So you don't have to disappoint all your kids. I did have a complaint once with a young lady when we had a Sunday service. She came right into the office and told me off a little bit, but the next week I gave her a present. It was one of the best spent quarters I ever spent, and uh, it was... So Hebrews 8, this is increment 243 of our Hebrews study. We see Jesus, Hebrews 2020. Hopefully we see him with the 2020 vision of the eyes of our heart more and more. Last week we dealt with the subject of gifts, the gifts and the gift. And this week, sacrifices and the sacrifice will hopefully come into focus. But I got a lot of other things too. Sometimes I get up in the morning bright and early and get a change in the direction of the message. So if you want to turn to Hebrews 8, we'll also be going hopefully to a place in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. So we'll be taking a couple of side journeys. Subject again, you'll, you'll notice that we have Greek titles next to the increments in our PDF notes, and this time it'll simply be Mian, M-A-M-I-A-N, which means one and only one. It's a very strong word for one, as there are many other words in the Greek for that word, but, and then Thusian, T-H-U-S-I-A-N, Thusian. I'm kind of wondering if enthusiastic comes from this sometime, somehow, but in the root word. Thusion means sacrifice. One and only one sacrifice, not many sacrifices. Judgment, by definition, is God's transforming mercy. Righteousness is God's love acting in saving justice. In his book on Christology called The Way of Jesus Christ, 
I just reread that book and read it a few years ago and reread it. Jurgen Moltmann said the following about this righteousness. It is a righteousness that creates justice and puts people right. So it is a redemptive righteousness. And he quotes Isaiah 127, or at least refers to it. The day of the Messiah, he says, like the day of Yahweh, is ultimately not a day of wrath. It is the day on which peace begins. By passing judgment on injustice and enmity, the Messiah creates a precondition for the universal kingdom of peace. In the same section, he answered the question that we all have, and I have it frequently. When you read the Psalms, you see cries for re revenge, oftentimes. Imprecatory prayers, which are prayers like, break their cheekbone, destroy them, Lord. And these are imprecatory prayers which call down judgment on one's enemies. And we have questions about this, and well, we should. And I think Moltmann went a long way to answer that question in this paragraph, which was on the same page in that book. It was Israel's hope for justice, he said, in her oppression, which gave birth to the ideas we find in the so-called revenge psalms. But these are not really visions of revenge, he says. What they're about is how the injustice which Israel is suffering in God's name will be made good. And since this suffering is in God's name, it's not Israel's suffering only. It is God's, too. God puts himself in the right when he puts Israel in the right, punishing the wickedness of the godless. Then he gives Psalm 94 as an example. Now, instead of going with our usual lead-in to this message, this really captured me, this idea that God punishes the wickedness of the godless. And this goes hand-in-hand hand with the truth that in his death on the cross, Jesus killed the enmity. He killed the hostility, not only between Israel and the nations, that is, between Jew and Gentile, but the gospel of God that Paul preached is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the non-Jew because God was in Christ not only killing the hostility, and we're going to see this documented in Ephesians, between Jew and Greek or Israel and the nations, but God also abolished the enmity between God and all human beings, Jews and Gentiles alike. God punished the wickedness of the godless when Jesus became sin for us all so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the fruit of the saving act of God in him, the righteousness of God in him. And 
that means that we would all become the everlasting beneficiaries of God's saving justice. To be made the righteousness of God in him is to be constituted as righteous by the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ. So we've seen a connection between Romans 5.19 and 2 Corinthians 5.21. It is to be made the very beneficiaries of God's saving justice in Jesus Christ, in whom there is universally saving significance. God's universally saving significance is a person. His name means salvation. His name is Yeshua. You shall call this child Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. And we know from later on in the scriptures that his people are all those people of whom he is an inclusive representative, and that's all people, for in Christ all will be made alive. And so that's how the problem is solved of the cries for vengeance or the evidently vengeful cries of the psalmist. For this reason, it's not unreasonable of Paul to say that God justifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. So in this connection, consider Ephesians 2, and I didn't plan to go there, which is why I love this, because going where you didn't plan to go means that sometimes God is involved. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, and this is my translation from taken directly from the Greek text with minimal commentary, but it says, for this reason, remember that once you were Gentiles according to the flesh, the goy, the goyim, according to the flesh, who were called, and that means disparagingly called, the uncircumcised. Literally, the foreskins, which is, not a very flattering term to be called. People have that in various ways. They call people that today. But that's, you were called Gentiles according to the flesh who were called the uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcised. They honorably called themselves the circumcised because, simply because of this, an operation performed on the flesh by the hands of a priest simply because of an operation performed on the flesh. They distinguish themselves from you, unwashed Gentiles. So at that time, and Paul gets pretty serious here, you were without Christ, without a Messiah. You were alienated from the body politic of Israel. And this implies, of course, that Coming into Christ, you come into the body politic of Israel and become part of the Israel of God. And we are citizens of heaven already. We're of the body politic of a heavenly city-state, even now. Remember that, especially in a political year, because your citizenship in this country is highly secondary, if not tertiary. Your primary citizenship and mine is a citizenship in heaven. And... That's going to be, I think, a major series in the future where we call it Oranopolis, the heavenly city. Let this Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem, come into your mind. When you do, you're above the fray of politics. You're above the fray of the enmity and the hostility 
that is being created in our country that has nothing to do with one side or another. It has to do with a plan of divisiveness to destroy the nation and bring it under a totalitarian control. So it's this freedom that's in Christ Jesus that is our heritage as citizens of heaven that we have to stand firm in, stand fast in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free. It was for freedom that he freed us. So stay free. Stay free from the control of sin, from the control of this evil age, and we're going to give you some help with that pretty soon when we start to knock down a few small strongholds like Einsteinian physics, Darwinian evolution, Freudian psychoanalysis, and Jungian Gnosticism, all of which have combined together, believe it or not, to make the world you live in today. The zeitgeist, the evil age. And you don't even know it, but you breathe it in and you exhale it. So we are going to tackle some of these things, but I'm taking my time because I don't want to be facile, too easy on presenting the case. I don't want to be too simple. I don't want to be too scientific. I couldn't be anyways. But we're going to handle some of these things. So at that time, you were without Christ, alienated from the body politic of Israel, having no hope. What you had might have been hope, but if it's not in Messiah, it ain't hope at all. It's a false hope. It's a false hope like we see today of a utopian society, a false hope of utopia. You, have, you had no hope, and you were without God in this world. There's no sadder statement in the world than that. Without God in this world. Can't imagine it. But now, and here's the most blessed of all phrases, in Christ Jesus. In Christo Jesu. In Christ Jesus. You who were formerly far away have become near by the blood of the Messiah. For, see if this isn't a familiar word from last week, he himself is our peace. Who made both. Now that word both is also interesting. I'm not going to go into it in detail, but both there means all. It doesn't just mean both like that and that group, that group and that group, Gentiles and Jews. It means all of humanity. It has two meanings in different contexts. In this context, it means both both Gentiles and Jews, but it also means all, meaning all of humanity. So I wanted to accentuate that in my translation. For he himself is our peace who made both or all, and even Gingrich lexicon brings this out where he says it means all when more than two are involved. And so, for he himself is our peace who made both. Now, why can I say that? Again, somebody says, well, that's a reach. Well, listen to this. God was in Christ reconciling or making peace with what? The world to himself. Reconciling the world to himself. So when I say Jesus is our peace, and when Paul says it, it's not just because he made Jews and Gentiles one new humanity. It's because he made all of humanity one new humanity, being peace for all of humankind. All right. Just have to make things clear sometimes, or clearer. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far away have become 
near by the blood of the Messiah, for he himself is our peace, who has made all one and has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. The middle partition. Incidentally, that was highly illustrated in AD 70 when the literal middle wall was demolished and not a stone was left upon a stone of that, illustrating what happened on the cross in Jesus Christ. Some people want to make a really big deal out of AD 70. I like to make a bigger deal out of AD 30. And I'm going to show you what I mean in a minute about that in Matthew 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's sort of about AD 70, but it's more about AD 30. Because Jesus endured the fate of the goats and the blessedness of the sheep by being elected as the only reprobate to experience sin and then elected as the only representative of all in election, the fate or the destiny of the sheep. But we'll get to that in a minute. He himself is our peace in person. First John kind of says that when it says Jesus Christ the righteous who is the propitiation for our sins. He is our peace because he is the propitiation or the expiation or the takeaway, the taking away, the removal of our sins. Not our sins only. But curiously, I think it says the sins of the whole world. He himself is our peace who has made both, or all, one, and has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Should be a new sentence in verse 15. In his flesh, the word became flesh, right? The word became flesh. What the law could not do in Romans 8, 3, God did by condemning sin in the flesh, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. God condemned sin including my sin and your sin, in the flesh of the Son of God. And this is what Ephesians means when it says, in his flesh, he abolished the law of commandments in the form of public decrees to create in himself, to create in himself one new man or one new humanity, also known as the New Covenant community. And thus, to make peace. Reconciling both, again, both means all, reconciling both or all in one body to God. And this is the phrase that really slammed me. Killing in himself the enmity through the cross. Dia tu staru. This is instauration, transformation through crucifixion, through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I don't glory in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified, is the key to the interpretation of all scriptures, all psalms, all parables, 
all law and prophets, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I determined to know nothing but, nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we look at the parable of the sheep and goats. What do we look at when we look at that parable? Jesus Christ and him crucified or you're going to mess it up. The Son of Man coming in his glory enthroned. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The sheep with their election and the goats with their rejection endured both by the king enthroned. Both endured both. The rejected one who became a curse for us, who became sin for us, the elect one who was raised and with his resurrection all of us were raised. Dia tustaru through the cross. So he did not destroy Jews or Gentiles, Israel or the nations, Jew or Greek, godless people or sinners. No, he destroyed the godlessness, the enmity, the hostility, sin itself in himself. What hit me in this was an image of someone not falling on a grenade, but hugging the grenade. The grenade's going to go off. It's going to go off any second. And that's what it means in Romans 5.8. At the right time means in the nick of time, Christ died for sinners. He hugs the grenade on the cross. And it blows up. It fragments. And he endures something unspeakable called absolute death for all humanity. He hugged the grenade. He himself became sin that we all would be constituted as righteous, even made the righteousness of God in him. Only through the cross, dia to staru, are all the puzzles of Scripture answered, all the interpretations of Scripture brought out of the state of being a riddle into a, the state of being an answer. I can't make sense of anything anymore except through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because I can make sense of everything through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not nuts. Because I would be if it weren't for that. Now, only through the cross can we interpret the so-called revenge psalms and see the divine answer to Israel's imprecatory prayers. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the key to the interpretation of all scripture. Didn't he say that himself in John 5, 39 and 40 and Luke 24, 26 to 28? Luke 24, 44, these all testify of me. And didn't the angel say that to John, who wrongly prostrated himself in front of that angel? And the angel said, don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant of yours. Worship God. And then he said what? The testimony of 
the prophets. The spirit of the prophets is the testimony of Jesus Christ. The essence of the prophetic message of the scripture is Jesus. Revelation 19.9 and 10. So all scripture is a striking manifestation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That starts in Genesis 1.1, incidentally. The first two words in the Greek translation are NRK. I'm going to hit this pretty soon, too. NRK. E-N-A-R-C-H-E. N-R-K. In the beginning, meaning an everlasting beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does NRK mean? Well, later on in scripture, Jesus says in Revelation, I am the RK. I am hey RK. And the Colossian letter says he is the beginning. Hey RK. So if God in the beginning made the heavens and the earth, that means that God timelessly made all creation in Christ Jesus. And he did it through the cross. You can't interpret Genesis 1-1 in terms of time because God created in an instantaneous instant called vertical causation, which isn't an act that he performed in time. And so all this debate from Genesis 1 is really a failing debate. And it's unfortunate that so-called science, which has become science, there's nothing wrong with science. Science and Christianity are in agreement. There is something wrong with a materialistic, atheistic scientism that only examines the universe on the level of the physical and the atomic, and then maybe the corporeal, but they've even rejected the corporeal part because Rene Descartes, who started all this stuff about bifurcation, says, well, what you see really isn't even there. What's really there is what is in you. Your perception is the reality. What's out there, that's not real, which has driven millions of people crazy. And it has remained in the thoughts of this zeitgeist into a materialistic scientism, the design of which is to bring people into this world without God, to make people be without God in this world, without hope in a Messiah, and to deteriorate even to the level of beasts and animals to act in packs and mobs. That's something coming up. They're zeitgeist, the, way, the spirit of the age right now. I think it's better to realize your citizenship in heaven because this that you see now in historical deterioration is not going to get immediately better. And it doesn't matter who you put in what office either. It's got to be something greater. It has to be what the old timers used to call revival, but they didn't mean it in the right way. It doesn't mean you come down and throw your Jack Daniels and your lucky strikes on the altar in a candlelight service. It means that you are radically transformed from within by the word of God and that you receive in your thinking and as your thinking the mind of Christ. And you'll then understand what some of the ancient metaphysicians understood, that the physics of our time has failed to understand, that this is an integral cosmos. This universe is tripartite. 
and that there is an aviternal and an eternal part of the universe. There is something above the corporeal. There is a created act, an act of will that brought all things that are into existence. And when you see this, you will see what has been touted as brilliance by guys like Stephen Hawking who tried to bring into the so-called science. And if you think his theory of everything is really everything, I'll tell you what it is. It's really a theory about nothing at all. Nothing at all. These guys get all of the applause of prophets in their time, but they're idiots because they failed to see an integral cosmos that certain people like Jean Barella and Wolfgang Smith have brought back to the fore. And I'm very grateful for that. Because, and again, that's going to have a, a lot of meaning and help us to stand on two legs as we understand the scriptures. So as you can tell, I'm already starting to prepare. So forgive me for going off course. So, not really, don't really forgive me. You don't. So consider for another famous or let's call it infamous example, the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Now, there's different ways to answer someone who doesn't believe that Jesus has universally saving significance. And there's a whole lot of people like that. And they, they, they call themselves by a name tag. I can't remember what it is. Oh, yeah, Christians. But they, they, they have an objection to it. And what we do is we try to answer this by saying, well, that word kolasin, K-O-L-A-S-I-N, for punishment, that just means correction or discipline. And that word aeonion, that can mean just for a minute or just for a little while. It doesn't mean eternal. And that's true in some contexts. But I think it's better not to soften any of the words in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Not to soften them not to manipulate the words, because serious objectors to the universal gospel won't buy that anyways, and they find that to be a little adolescent. They find it, if not infantile. Infantile, and in fact, psychologists have recently said that infantilization or becoming an infant again happens when you do things like watch superhero movies. I'm, all right, I know, I already got 10 people mad at me. No, 100. So instead of becoming infants, I think it's time to become mature, and that's only through the word of God. But to interpret that particular parable, I don't think we have to manipulate the meaning of words like colossin or aeonion in Matthew 25, 46, and say that the punishment is only correction or discipline and only for a while to get this point of this parable across. No, serious objectors to our doctrine won't buy that anyways. Rather, this parable is ultimately an apocalyptic picture of Jesus Christ and him crucified, as I alluded to before. Matthew 25, 31 to 46 really puts across the Jewish apocalyptic view of the last judgment. That's the kind of view they had because, as you read it in the Psalms, same as in the Psalms, a call for revenge, a call for judgment. Yes, these nations, these nations that have persecuted us, they're going to an eternal hell with the devil and his angels. That's an apocalyptic picture that was put forth by the deeply oppressed and persecuted Jews. 
And so Jesus uses, he traffics in that apocalyptic genre all the time. He did all the way through Matthew 24. That's why it's not understood today. Just like physics doesn't understand metaphysics, the science beyond physics, so Christian exegetes don't understand the cosmology or the study of the universe that was understood by the ancients when they wrote the Bible. They don't understand it. We don't understand it. So part of the study, part of my study in the past couple of decades has been get back to the mind of the cosmology or the origins of the universe in the minds of the Bible writers. The apocalyptic genre, which is their graphic novel genre of the time, understand where they're coming from when they talk about these things. So this picture of the last judgment, we shouldn't soften it. And Jesus didn't soften those words. Instead, he alluded to the fact that this refers to his crucifixion in which he would bear the judgment of the goats by becoming the scapegoat. And Brian just taught on this rather masterfully in his CP 22, Christ and the Passover, part 22. When he talked about the two goats, the two goats, the scapegoats, the one had the sin, one was killed and one was ran out into the wilderness and took away sin. He took away the those are goats, plural. So the allusion here is to the goats on the left hand. Jesus became both goats in the antitype of the Day of Atonement. So he experienced the death. He experienced the damnation. He experienced the hell that the goats of this apocalyptic picture were to experience. But he also experienced the sheep's destiny to go into the joy of the Lord. He did all that in the cross for us. Matthew 25, they say, is part of the Matthew 24. It is. It's a continuation of the Sermon on the Olivet Mountain. But it also gives way, if you notice, that the, the action of Matthew becomes very rapid from the end of Matthew 25 onwards because it goes to tell of the events leading to the crucifixion of the Son of Man on the cross his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. Although his ascension isn't touched by Matthew, it is by Luke and by Acts. So Matthew 25, 31 to 46, is ultimately an apocalyptic picture of Jesus Christ and him crucified. It really puts across the Jewish apocalyptic view of the last judgment. Jesus is faithful to say, this is what you guys expect in the last judgment. And you're going to get it, but you're going to get it in a way you never imagined. You're going to get it in a few days when I bear the sins of the world and the fate of the goats and the destiny of the sheep as you, for you, for you all. Say, so how do you come to that conclusion? I'll answer that through the eye of a needle. You don't just get that because it dawned on you. You get that because after 50 years of studying, the Holy Spirit finally pushes you through the eye of the needle and says, that's Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or that's me and me crucified, Jesus says. That's reality. That's the reality of this parable. Because in that, Jesus puts across the Jewish apocalyptic view of the last judgment 
and the final punishment of the nations who were not sympathetic to Israel or her Messiah. But the last judgment was transposed by Jesus to the cross where he himself became sin so that the unrighteous could be destroyed. And how are the unrighteous destroyed? By being made the righteousness of God in him. The unrighteous are destroyed by becoming the righteousness of God in him. What happens to the unrighteous? They get destroyed. How? By becoming righteousness. Because he who knew no sin became sin and was destroyed as sin would be. Hugging that grenade. Like the comedic character in one of Shakespeare's plays, I can't remember who it was, it was the constable. He shouted out, all depressed and desperate, he says, I've been condemned to eternal salvation. That's us. Condemned the unrighteous to eternal redemption. He himself, in his crucifixion, in his experience of absolute death, where he tasted death for everyone. He received the judgment of the goats in the fire that was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. He himself, the lamb, consumed. He himself, being the antitype of the scapegoats of the Day of Atonement, for us. He take away, takes away the sin of the world is what the scapegoat did. The scapegoat took away sin, so why is it the lamb that takes away sin? Because the lamb is the antitype for all the types, whether they're goats or bulls or red heifers or doves. He, the lamb, is the antitype for them all. So the lamb of God takes away the sin of the world just like the scapegoat took the sin on himself and went into the wilderness was never seen again. But he was also like the goat that was slain. So you see, he bears the fate of the goats in that parable as he also receives the entry into the joy of his father's kingdom for us and as us. He himself being the antitype of the scapegoats of the Day of Atonement for us. So he himself received entry into the joy of the Father's kingdom of peace for us and as us in his resurrection, in his ascension. And so notice that after Matthew 25, the narrative hurries through the Eucharist, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus the Messiah, and then to his resurrection from the dead. Because Matthew 25 was precisely foretelling these events, foreshadowing these events. And there is a secondary way in which these events are also fulfilled in AD 70, the coming of the Son of Man to judge the old Jerusalem. So why did I say all that today instead of something else? Because Hebrews takes it all from here. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews takes it all from there. He who is our peace. 
he who secured universal reconciliation and obtained redemption by his own blood and not the blood of others. For all who sinned, he obtained redemption for all who sinned. For all sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified on the basis of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All who sinned are justified. They received eternal redemption in Christ Jesus. It's a done deal. It's a finished reality. And he whom the God of peace, it says, the God of peace, in Hebrews 13, 20, led him up out of the realm of the dead. That's a way of saying raised him from the dead. The God of peace led up and away from the realm of the dead, Jesus, on account of the efficacy of the blood of the everlasting covenant. Hebrews 13, 20. This same Jesus, who is our peace, is exalted and enthroned at the right hand of God in heaven. And because of the righteousness, because the righteousness of God is his saving act, because of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Moltman is once again right and correct to conclude, and yes, I've read most of his theology, and yes, I had to sort it out from the distractions of his politics. I said the distraction of his politics. But he was correct to say, quote, the divine righteousness which Paul makes the subject of his apostolic gospel is the creative righteousness which creates justice and justifies. It is not the penal law of retaliation. It is this Jesus who is our peace. This man, the man Christ Jesus, who is the only mediator between all of God and all of humanity. This Jesus, who is our peace, is the epicenter of God's reconciliation of the world to himself, and he's the one who happens to be seated, enthroned, at the right hand of God in the highest height of the heavenly New Jerusalem, the heavenly city. Jesus, who is our peace, is the universally saving significance of God, in person. He who is our peace is also, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, the Lord our righteousness, Yahweh to Sidkenu. God, that's Jeremiah 23, 6. God has made him to be for us righteousness, sanctification, which means completeness, wisdom, redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30, thanks be to God. So let's go to Hebrews 8, and we'll move into third and fourth gear quickly. 
Go ahead, Mark, sing it. It's all right. <laughs> Third gear, then, whatever. Isaac says he has a car with eight gears, and he said, man, I was hoping you didn't go through all eight last week. So, Hebrews 8. Now, the sum of what we are saying is this. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a temple servant in the holy places of the true tent, the one pitched by the Lord, not man. Love is the premier act of the divine and human essence of the Son of God. I began with what righteousness is. I'm telling you now that love is the premier act of the divine and human essence of the Son of God. By this we know love, that this one, curious phrase, this one for us gave up his own life. That's 1 John 3.16. You want to know love? Here it is. This one, for us, gave up his own life. 1 John 3, 16a. But this one, the same construction is used, having offered one sacrifice, me anthusion, one sacrifice, for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10.12. Now, I think that the people that this writer wrote to actually lived around, or at least saw by traveling to Jerusalem, priests standing every day, standing every day, offering sacrifices, same old sacrifices, day after day, time after time, time after time. No, never, that's my... Mine goes me. I grew up with a mom who sang 24 hours a day. Sang, and if she wasn't singing, she was whistling. And you get up in the morning to go to school, and she's got a little transistor radio about this big, a green one, and it's playing WBTN, Bennington, Vermont. It's playing 40s music and 50s music, and she's singing. So my mind always goes to songs because up until she was 93 and went into the arms of the Lord, she sang. Her life was a song, and she was a work of art and an expression of Christ to me, for sure, and to my sisters, and to my dad. So that's why, if you see me move into music, although my mom liked one Beatles song yesterday, she didn't relate to my Led Zeppelin phase or Jimi Hendrix or some of those playing. So, time after time, that's not. Led Zeppelin. So then, where was I? <laughs> Hebrews. That's Hebrews 10. They, they saw these priests. They stood every day. They were standing all the time, offering sacrifices. Same old sacrifice, time after time, couldn't take away sin. And the Day of Atonement, once a year, they'd go to, and all it did was remind you of your sin, and you didn't go away thinking, oh, I'm all forgiven, you went away with a consciousness of sin that's even stronger than when you went. That's like going to church sometimes. You go there, conscious of sin, you come back even more conscious of sin. And I stopped going to churches like that a long time ago. So, they compared it. What about 
isn't this silly to go to keep going back to where they keep doing the same sacrifice every day and watch this every day when one man Christ Jesus the Messiah offered one sacrifice for all time for all people ascended and sat down he sat down because he's finished it's done it's finished Hebrews 10 12 now that this one is the one to whom God says sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. That's what he means. It's of such significance that he's seated next to the Father in the heavens. Meaning, what significance? He's the one in Psalm 110.1. That's what significance. And he that's in Psalm 110.1 that the Father says, Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. Is the same one to whom he said, and no other biblical writer got this, but this one. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which is the basis for most of the heart of Hebrews. So that this one is the one to whom God says, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet, in Psalm 110.1091 in the Septuagint, is made incontestably evident in Hebrews 10.13. You can even be there if you want, where it says, this one... who made one sacrifice for sins forever sat down, is now waiting until his enemies are made a footrest for his feet. So he is the one that Psalm 110.1 made such a big deal about, and rightly so. This one who gave up his own life for us, having offered himself as the one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It is this one who is our priest. I've heard people recently say, and my mom said this once in a while, well, this, I have a priest now, he's from Ireland, and he's, I have one that's from Poland. She didn't like the one from Poland because he always started his sermons off with a joke. And everybody would laugh except my mom, and I'd say, Mom, did you hear the joke? She said, yes, but priests shouldn't tell jokes. So we got a pretty good, I think we got a pretty good priest. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for all his enemies to be brought under his feet. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever, for all sins, for all time. And he is our archpriest. We got a pretty good priest this time. They moved the other ones out. Put this one in. Only two people got mad at me at that one. Now. This one, this archpriest, doesn't remain standing like the many priests of the old order, day after day, time after time, 10-11, taking, offering sacrifices that can't take away sins. That he sat down dramatically shows that his one sacrifice, that's our subject today, mian thusian, his one sacrifice took away sins for all time just as as God's lamb, he took away the sin of the whole cosmos, the whole world. John 1.29 compared with Hebrews 9.26. So I hope in closing that you see, I hope you see, how this theme and this vision of the enthroned and exalted God-man is sustained throughout Hebrews. Started in 1.3. Hebrews 8.1. Picked up again in 12.2. It's found in Hebrews 1.13, which actually quotes Psalm 110.1. One. 
And I hope you see the note struck again and again of the one sacrifice over and against sacrifices, plural, the very plurality of which indicates their weakness as their constant repetition showed their inefficacy, their inability to remove sins once and for all and forever. So in Hebrews, what receives more explicit attention, even than the interplay of gifts and the gift, like we saw last week, is the contrast between sacrifices and the sacrifice by which we are sanctified and perfected. Sanctification and completion are inseparable concepts. And that's what Hebrews is all about. He perfects forever those who are sanctified. Perfected, completed, Hebrews 10.10, 10.14, that's all coming up. And so in, in closing number two, now where does this end? Well, the efficacy never ends. But this that we're dealing with today, this once and for all sacrifice, becomes thematic, T-H-E-M-A-T-I-C. It's the theme through the rest of the expositional section that concludes in Hebrews 10.18. 10.18 is the last verse in the section that we're in that began with Hebrews 8.1, the central section. And that verse says, Now where there is the forgiveness of these that is the forgiveness of sins instead of the remembrance of them, the forgiveness of sins which is promised in the New Covenant oracle by Jeremiah, which we're going to hit in Hebrews 8, 6 to 13, where there is the forgiveness of these sins, meaning instead of the remembrance of them, there is no more sacrifice, no more sacrifice to be offered, no more sacrifice for sins to be offered. Logical. So if the writer wanted to get just down and direct, he would say, so why are you guys keep, why do you keep on going? I don't recommend that you go to Jerusalem in A.D. 66 for the feasts there because something bad is going to happen. The abomination of desolation is going to surround the city in the person of the armies of Rome. It's going to squeeze off the life of the city. It's going to move closer and closer until it finally destroys Jerusalem, burns the city, and kills all the inhabitants or enslaves them as it did with 900,000 Jews. Don't go there. And guess what? Not one did. Not one Christian was even in that city when it happened. Not one. And we'll be hitting that AD 70 connection soon. So this entire section has to do with the something. Something in the way. No, oh, I'm sorry. It has to do with the something which our great archpriest has to offer. That he did offer. That he does offer. What he does is eternal. So what he did offer, he does offer and will offer always. For his offering was made through the eternal spirit in Hebrews 9.14. It was and is the sacrifice of himself. So we close with Hebrews 8.3. You see, every archpriest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, plural. Therefore, it is necessary that this priest also have something 
to offer. Maybe next time we'll hit 4A. In fact, if he were on earth, he wouldn't even be a priest. Wouldn't even be one. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into the word and lo and behold what we see there is something we don't sometimes expect to see we see a crucified messiah crowned with a crown of thorns brutally maltreated nailed to a tree but as we follow the narrative we see him laid in a tomb we see him resurrected from the dead We see him ascending and blessing as he goes up. We see him now seated at the right hand, Father, your right hand, where he advocates for us, where he is our peace. And we pray, Father, that today we'll go from here with that peace that is Jesus Christ as our experience and the experience of our soul. For the kingdom of God is righteousness, the saving act of God peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let this be our experience, Father. And so having had the word exegeted as they did in Nehemiah 8, 8 through 10, may we go forth from this place today with the joy of the Lord being our strength to meet come what may in this world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't forget the angel tree.